Hello, and welcome to the Think Peace podcast, where peace crosses the mind. The show that explores intersection of the human brain, psyche, and obstacles and opportunities to forging a lasting peace. I'm your host, Colette Rausch, and today we are talking about intergroup relations and conflict, as well as collective action for social change. Our guest is Hema Priya Sovanathan. Hema is a lecturer in the School of Psychology at the University of Queensland, Australia. Her research is on the psychology of social change and intergroup relations, which includes topics such as social movements, activism, conflict, peace, and reconciliation. She was born and raised in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, and completed her PhD in social psychology with a concentration in the psychology of peace and violence at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Hey, welcome, Hamad, to the Think Peace podcast. It's so great to have you here with us today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. So I'm really interested uh, to learn how you got interested in the intersection of intergroup relations and how change happens how social change comes about. How did you get involved in this, working in this, this intersection? Yeah, sure. I guess we have to go back to college days when I uh, majored in psychology. I really wanted to understand human behavior and human attitudes. And I really got interested in um, prejudice, discrimination, and that sort of work, which primarily sits in social psychology. So I went on to do a PhD in social psychology and got really interested in political action. So pushing for change through protests and things like that. And I think a big part of that is really growing up as a minority in a multicultural country. So I was born and raised in Malaysia and my ethnic and religious group mix up maybe about 7% of the population. And there is uh, heavy state-sanctioned discrimination against minorities, unfortunately, in Malaysia. And so it was really hard, for example, to get into uh, government schools because <laughs> um, you're kind of competing against your own ethnic group. And so I um, am Tamil, which means that my ancestors, I guess, came from northern Sri Lanka. And uh, my religion is Hinduism. And so although I grew up having lots of friends from different groups, it was very clear that the, the ethnic and religious majority in the country, the Muslim Malays, tended to have an easier time maybe getting into college and university. And that was a bit of a tipping point for me after high school, having gone through government schooling and seeing different treatment happening. So of course, back then I didn't have the language or the concepts to make sense of these experiences. I was just a very angry, <laughs> bitter kid. But I would say taking classes, studying stigma and prejudice, and in particular, understanding the social psychological mechanisms and group processes helped me make sense of that experience. And so until today, I'm very interested in understanding how to achieve uh, greater equality and justice between groups. And so, yeah, this is how I came to start studying uh, social change and intergroup processes. Was there a moment when you had this kind of uh, epiphany that yes, this is this is a space that I want to explore? Hmm. I'd say 
so I did my undergraduate in uh, the University of Wisconsin, Eau Claire, and I remember taking a class on stigma, prejudice, and discrimination, and we were learning all these concepts and all these cool experiments that researchers did, and I think that was a class that really sort of put me onto this trajectory uh, that cemented my interest in social psychology, and it was a bit of the light bulb moment because we had to write a lot of reflective essays and things to make sense of your experiences and your own biases as well as being a target of those biases and if you know anything about Eau Claire, Wisconsin it's a very small town very white town so I was at the same time um, being an outsider there uh, feeling like the only you know the only minority in the room and so on and so it really resonated with me all those concepts and the research findings to sort of make sense of my own lived experiences. I would say that's the class that really, yeah, gave me a lot of those moments where where I was like, oh, okay, I'm not the only one feeling this way. It is a systematic experience as a result of the way um, different groups are organized within particular social hierarchies. So I was in a different, part of a different social hierarchy in the US, and a different one in Malaysia, but I could kind of see how being a minority in these different contexts really informed my thinking and my interest in the space. And when you talked about the issue of prejudice and discrimination really being within the realm of social psychology, how else does social psychology inform, as you mentioned, the hierarchy and and how we as humans organize ourselves into groups? How and why do we do that? How can social psychology let us know, you know what informs those choices um, of groups that we pair off into or, or group break down into? Yeah, absolutely. So social psychology is primarily the study of people in social situations. And even if we're not in the presence of others, being part of other groups and having those social categories that we are part of informs our thinking and beliefs even when we're all alone. And so formally it's kind of defined as the how we think, behave and feel in the presence of others or in the imagined presence of others. A prominent theory within social psychology that I use a lot in my work as well is the social identity theorizing, which essentially states that we're all part of different social groups because humans are social creatures. And when I say social groups, it's not just politicized groups like race or ethnicity, but also groups like your family and the hobbies that you're part of. If you play sports, it's a sports team or in schools, it's your classroom. And so these different groups really inform how we think and believe and what we uh, behave like in particular social situations. And you can see very quickly that every individual is a part of various different groups, right? At different levels. So even um, nationality would be one particular level. And so in different situations, different um, identities come into play that are more important than others. And so a lot of the research uh, looking at social identity theorizing and social identity perspectives have shown that these groups are very powerful motivators. We want to preserve the the rights and the well-being of the groups that we are a part of. And that can lead to in-group favoritism. That means you favor the groups that you're a part of. But at the same time, you might have prejudice and hold stereotypes of other groups that you are not a part of, that you come into contact with in your daily life and social environment. 
And so this in-group, out-group bias or the sense of us versus them taken to the extreme, you know, you can also apply it to the understanding of things like genocide and war and intergroup conflict and violence. And day-to-day -day levels, it might surface as microaggressions or biased comments and prejudice and so on. And so this is kind of the basis of a lot of the behaviors that I am trying to understand. When you're talking about um, issues such as justice or equality or equitable treatment of individuals, despite whatever group identity they may or may not be in, but that people are treated equi equitably, um, have you found that there might be ways that groups, one group might come together with another group? so that together they can work for social change? And what are some enabling features of that? And what are some disabling or challenges to groups coming together for this kind of more equitable um, aspects across, across groups? Yeah, absolutely. So I think what you're describing might be a form of allyship. And in particular, my, my research has looked at why groups that are relatively advantaged or privileged in society. And so for example, white people in the US or the Malay Muslims in Malaysia, why might they come to support racial equality and um, join these sort of movements to achieve that goal? So one of the things I've looked at is the role of leadership. And so when I think about leaders within a movement, they are tasked with this gigantic <laughs> uh, task essentially to unite diverse groups in a society. So in the Malaysian context, I did a series of interviews with activists that were really aiming to push for electoral reform. But a key challenge that they faced was because they were pushing to uh, challenge the government to adopt um, better policies so that mm -hmm. the election outcomes were fairer and the, proce the processes were also uh, equitable, they were really faced with criticisms about being anti-Malay. And so a big task for them was to also mobilize Malay uh, people in the population to be part of their, their uh, support base. And so when we look at uh, the social identity perspective of leader, uh, on leadership, you can see how the leaders attempted to create a sense of us, that you have this unifying goal that sort of uh, tries to break down the barriers between different racial groups and also employing leaders uh, within the movement in central positions and as spokespeople from the Malay community themselves. And so that was a particular way that they attempted to use strategic leadership. And so this process shows how leadership can be strategic and through their decision-making processes, they really attempted to create this inclusive movement um, and so sense of solidarity on the ground. You can also see a similar situation in the Black Lives Matter movement in the US. And through this movement, a lot of white allies have come to be involved. And in some of my earlier work uh, as a PhD student, I looked at how contact with um, black people in, in the US, being friends with them and having positive interactions with them, getting to know them. This can really promote empathy for black people and also a sense of anger when they are faced with racial injustice. And so because of these emotional processes, it can lead you to show solidarity and support through joining the Black Lives Matter movement and joining protests and so on. So that's another kind of bottom up way, if you will, that uh, these social change outcomes can be created and a top down way would be 
the mobilization strategies that leaders themselves use to try to recruit more uh, advantage group allies within such movements. That's interesting because you were talking about in one context, finding a common goal, something that they could rally around, even though they might be in different groups. That was one aspect. And yeah. then bring, bringing in uh, members from the majority to, to work together to expand the concept of group around a common goal. How, in, how important mm. is having that focus? It's something that both groups can, can agree on or value in order to keep that kind of cohesiveness of the group to, to, to push for or advocate for change. Yeah, definitely. I think it is very central because um, then you have a, a superordinate identity or goal around which you can rally. And so sometimes that goal might be uh, racial equality or justice, but people can come to a cause for different reasons, right? And I think in minority-led movements like the Black Lives Matter movement, while it's important to have that common goal to mobilize white people, for example, as allies, but it's also important to kind of have distinct roles. And so I've done a bit of a review of the literature, which shows that disadvantaged groups within these movements, they they have a need to feel empowered and respected. And so they tend to take on leadership roles within this movement. And a lot of social change movements tend to be led by minority groups themselves. And so you kind of don't want to dilute the message too much to be uh, like, we're all equal, we're all in this together, and the differences don't matter anymore. So it's almost maintaining those subgroup identities that yes, I'm an ally, and so I'll be a follower. And, um, and versus you are the disadvantaged group, and so you will be the leader. And so having that distinction within the subordinate goal of achieving justice and equality that everyone agrees with, I think that layer and nuance is really important in order to preserve the needs of different groups in, um, in that interaction. Yeah, and that's, that's a very important point because as you mentioned, you can rally around the general principles, the, the you know, we want a society that is equitable, just mm. yet what you described pulling the two pieces apart under that is really leadership because as you're describing it, having allies come and usurp leadership or take roles that are outside then undermines exactly what they're trying to do. So sure. you're talking about, okay, so leadership there is very important. And, but yeah. then the second part is, if you could tease that apart a little bit, is the part where you talked about the identity of the subgroup. How, mm. if you're in a group, let's just say you start with the, the common goal, the broad common mm -hmm. goal, and then leadership stays with, the, with a certain group. Mm-hmm the roles, you know, if you could talk a little bit more about that, and then also tease out a little bit how one might um, maintain the subgroup identity so it doesn't become diluted. So you can kind of mm -hmm. give an example of what that might look like, because those are subtle, subtle differences, yeah. but critically important differences as you just described. Yeah, absolutely. So some of the different roles that we've looked at uh, in the context of white allies in racial justice movements in the US, people are very uh, aware that they hold privilege even when they join these spaces. It's very clear that if it's uh, a mostly white rally, you know, a police are less likely to intervene, they're, they're more likely to be given the benefit of doubt and all of that. And so I think putting their uh, 
um, the using the privilege for good, which means challenging inequality when you see it, pointing out prejudice when you see it, but at the same time, not speaking for the disadvantaged mm -hmm. um, or the minority person in that situation is very important. And the research shows that um, people from uh, minority backgrounds, they do tend to be distrustful of allies or the advantage group because they think, well, they might be, you know, pretty superficial or they might only be there when it's convenient for them because their life isn't on the line. And so I think understanding where that suspicion comes from and how, you know, there might be legitimate reasons, of course, that you don't want to have allies there because the goal is not in line with that or you want to create more solidarity within the minority community first before you include allies. So trying to understand that and not feeling um, excluded or suddenly discriminated against because you're not included as an ally is really important there and the research shows that so because of that suspicion it's sort of important then for the allies to uh, confront discrimination and injustice when they see it and not only focus on providing empathy or harmony so yes maybe you want to have um, be supportive in those interpersonal relations but you also want to go a step further and challenge injustice for example and for the for the ally or the advantage group in that situation their need is mostly to feel uh, accepted and they want to be seen as moral, um, to be reaccepted into this community. And so because, you know, they are members of other, uh, the other people within their group, other white people probably have perpetrated racism and have this history of discrimination against the racial minority group. So you as a member of that group, you feel that kind of burden and you might have shame and things like that, but, and guilt. But those are very self-focused emotions. And that's why you kind of want to focus on the anger and the empathy for the other group rather than trying to alleviate your own sense of guilt and shame by being involved in this work. And so trying to focus on the needs of the racial minority group. And so that's why having distinct roles as leaders and followers is one of the common ways that this can play out. Um, and yeah, showing up to rallies and movements, even when it's difficult and it's not convenient and having those difficult con conversations with other members of your group. So although you want to associate with the disadvantaged group, you also can't forget that your role is also to mobilize other people within your community. So uh, a Malay person trying to speak about racial equality to other Malays will be way more effective than a Chinese or an Indian uh, Malaysian trying to do that same work. And so trying to mobilize your own community is really central there. The other question you mentioned about how to maintain that distinct, those distinctions, I think it's really tricky and it's also really difficult to study. Um, you can kind of think about ways that that has gone wrong you know, in certain movements, if um, allies try to take too much of a leadership role or, to, or have too much influence, typically uh, that's not sustainable. And um, the research shows that the minority groups really prefer if the advantage group ally does not have too much influence. So you want them to be there and use their privilege, but not to sort of be more influential um, than the minority uh, groups. And so, yeah, that distinction, I'm not quite sure how people preserve it. I think leadership is also really important there, how the disadvantaged groups who are seen as the people who started the movement and the people within the leadership roles, 
they should be the one to sort of call the shots and strategize and build solidarity. And so mm-hmm. I think respecting that and respecting how certain spaces might not be for allies, that could be another way I think that this is preserved. And it really, um, what you're talking about really requires allies to be mindful of mm. their role and to have that understanding coming in to the, to, yes. into a relationship of, of engagement. Mm-hmm. So earlier you had mentioned the importance of engaging with anger and um, empathy mm. to understand what is going on rather than sometimes a natural tendency of trying to smooth things over or looking at one's own experience of the matter and you know feelings of shame or actions that one might've felt that they were responsible for. Can you mm-hmm. tease that apart a little bit and what, this, what your studies show of the importance of staying with yeah. the um, anger and emotions of the person that you're with? Yeah, I guess one way to think about it is uh, there are, you know, you feel all kinds of things when you see injustice towards another group. And empathy is a very other focused emotion. So it's not, it's feeling bad when the other person or the a person from the other group feels bad or feeling upset on their behalf when they're also upset and something happens to them. But empathy alone is not enough. It needs to kind of lead to anger that you yourself feel angry about that injustice. And anger is a very critical emotion in the collective action literature because it is a very action focused emotion. So it kind of prompts people to take action. And so that's very central to mobilize people versus other kind of self-focused emotions like guilt and shame. Well, the research shows that although that's a very common reaction that advantage group members might have when they're confronted with inequality and prejudice uh, committed by their own group or when they look at situations where the minority suffers, but those emotions tend to not uh, mobilize people as much. Mm -hmm. Sure, you might support certain policies and practice, but it typically doesn't push you enough to go out and protest and do something about the situation you kind of aim to alleviate it it's very uncomfortable sort of emotion but you also can withdraw from the situation and in particular shame you want to kind of get rid of that emotion so you might do something else to kind of deal with it and suppress it and so that's why I think anger is very central here as a mobilizing emotion and when we talk about empathy some studies talk about how we may empathize with some groups mm. or individuals that we may not with others. Mm. So can you talk a little bit about the importance of empathy in order to create more of a connection with someone else that you may have contact with and um, how that yeah. could be a facilitating kind of um, connection? Yeah, absolutely. I think and you can think about empathy uh, and who we empathize with as sort of drawing those 
boundaries and those group lines. So if you empathize, it's very easy to empathize with people that are part of your own group, right? Because you kind of, you're in a similar situation and you can understand where they're coming from a lot easier because you see them as a part of your group. But the trick there is to also extend that to other groups. And the moment you do that, you're kind of blurring the boundary lines a little bit and you kind of it's because you can sort of see a subgroup identity, if you will. So you might see that we're all humans or we're all Americans and we all should uh, be treated fairly, for example. That's kind of the cognitive dimension of what's going on there about why empathy becomes possible for that group. Um, if you see them as an outgroup or a group that you don't want to sympathize with, and this can be um, extremist groups that maybe are widely hated, right? It's very rare that you might want to empathize with them. Uh, and that's because you draw those boundary lines that they are not a part of you and they're not a part of us. But if you think that they are a part of you and us, and you're part of this same community, then you're going to empathize with them. And so that's kind of the, co the cognitive dimension behind that. But the emotional part is that you feel uh, sorry for them or you feel bad when they're going through something difficult. And so that's kind of the importance of empathy there. Yeah, when you were talking, I kind of got this image of like a dartboard. And <laughs> to the extent we may have a very small bullseye circle of where we've drawn our lines. Yeah. But the outer rings, you know, it's like expanding out our empathy zone through, you know, the lines as you do it or our camera aperture. Can we open the aperture of mm -hmm. empathy in some way? Absolutely. Um, I really like that um, <laughs> analogy. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about social movements and yeah. how change occurs from your work and also practice. That, that you've experienced, what are some key things that you might recommend or suggest that people who are interested in change or social transformation mm -hmm. that they keep an eye um, on as far as actions that they can take to mm -hmm. kind of help social transformation? Hmm. I don't know if I'm in the best position to say that. <laughs> I think the most robust finding so far has been about nonviolent strategy and really how effective it is, even in the face of violent repression from the state and the police. So even when the government uses those tactics to really try to quench uh, or you know, eliminate protests, it actually ironically just increases support for them because the public sees this playing out and activists themselves are on the receiving end of that violence and they kind of want to keep going because there's this greater sense of injustice and you want to keep mobilizing. And so a nonviolent tactic and uh, using peaceful methods of protest, like through mass movements, sit-ins uh, and so on, tend to be very effective in terms of raising public sympathy. We don't quite know how uh, effective violent flanks are, for example, because movements tend to be you know, very large. There are all kinds of actions going on. So some rallies or protests might become violent, but to what extent do people then see it as justified, right? When uh, maybe peaceful tactics did not work and then the movement turns violent, for example. Also how a violent uh, type of flank or part, a partition within a movement can then mobilize more people to support the nonviolent or the peaceful side of it. And so this type of dynamic, I think it's still the research in that area is still in its infancy. What we have so far is essentially 
we know that the public, as they watch this unfolding, um, it's, yeah, they sympathize a lot more with the nonviolent tactics. And I keep mentioning the public because a lot of my research has focused on the role of the broader society and the public as they watch social movements unfold. And so understanding why movements occur is important, but also understanding how the public responds to this, because we know that most of the people in society are not out there protesting. So they kind of make up the audience, if you will, watching the spectacle happen, <laughs> whether in person or maybe they are disrupted when they are in the car and there's terrible traffic because of a protest going on or when they're consuming the news um, when it's featured in the media. And so some of the research shows that, well, to the extent that these protests can empower members of the public, uh, when they see it happening, they feel hopeful, they feel a sense of efficacy as well, that uh, situation can change that can increase support for social change and increase identification with that movement. But protests can also be quite threatening. So if people experience a sense of fear and they feel threatened and kind of concerned about the future because maybe it creates a sense of instability in society, then that's gonna draw people away. So we have a preliminary evidence to suggest that through some longitudinal work where we surveyed members of the public before a big protest happened and immediately after, and you can kind of see these shifts happening in um, polarizing ways. So yeah, that's some of the, the work we've done so far. The other work that's ongoing is on the role of counter protests. And when I think about social movements, it's kind of implicit that these movements are progressive, but that's not true. There are also uh, movements that are defending the status quo that are against social change. And so these types of reactionary movements that are against equality and against social change, when they kind of protest and mobilize against movements for social change, what effect does that have on social change? So this is kind of the guiding uh, idea in the central question in this line of work. So far, we're finding that counter protests against social change ironically increase public support for movements for social change. And that's because they see the injustice much more clearly and they see that um, they're concerned about the protests for social change and their rights being taken away and their freedom of speech being taken away when they see this clear enemy group. Um, so this is kind of the dynamic in um, society, right? That there's not only progressive movements, but they're also reactionary, uh, more regressive movements. And I think it's important to kind of understand more of the dynamics moving forward rather than just focusing on one type of movement. Yeah, and it's interesting too, because when you're talking about even progressive movements, it, one cannot say, oh, the minute you have the progressive movement, individuals will see that there's the need, it'll bring that need to the forefront and there'll be more support because you mentioned that may or may not be the case, it may be, but at the yeah. same time, as you said, it can also be perceived by some to be a threat, um, a, a sense of insecurity that could be threatening and scary. Um, and yeah. fearful for some. And is through the research, is there any indicator of um, whether one might fall on one side or another, or is it just very context specific and frankly could change even within a course of a protest, that, progressive protest that could be supported initially and then could change. And so I can imagine social justice and social progressive leaders having to navigate this uncertainty. 
yeah. for public support. Yeah, I think that's the key challenge for activists. So some strategies that activists use that are maybe extreme or yeah, just too radical, not even violent, maybe just too radical if you use maybe foul language in your uh, slogans or in your chants, even that can be enough to reduce public sympathy and people think that it's illegitimate to do that. And so that's where I think most of the research then shows that being peaceful and using peaceful tactics and being, you know, so-called nice, even in the face of injustice, tends to be really powerful there. Yeah, so that's really, I think, how uh, violence can be viewed as a threat. Um, whether or not people in society, are they from advantaged groups themselves and privileged? And so then they are kind of secluded and they don't really know uh, or understand why this protest is even needed. So then they just see it as a disruption and a threat to their daily life. But the interesting thing, so sociologists and social movement scholars, when they study social movements and the protests that they organize, they kind of uh, have likened protests to performances because it's this big spectacle that aims to get a reaction, good or bad, and it really aims to be disruptive of everyday life and business as usual. So even when you have that gut feeling as like, oh, this is an inconvenience or, you know, I don't want to, uh, why are these people doing this? That's precisely the kind of reaction that um, the protest aims to do, right? To elicit something in you and to force you to kind of see the situation, even if your uh, daily life kind of prevents you from doing that. And so, yeah, in in a lot of ways, protests are very polarizing because it has the potential to raise greater support and for public to come and rally behind it and see the legitimacy of it. But at the same time, there are going to be some people that are pushed away from it because they don't see it as a legitimate cause. And they um, maybe they support the cause, but they don't support the tactics to get there. Yeah, and to pick up on the type of protests you call them counter protests, protests that may be keeping the status quo or pushing for more regressive or repressive structures or, or approaches. Mm. This may be, I don't know if there's research related to, then you might get a counter protest to that counter protest pushing for, um, and you saw this in the United States, you see this mm. in different countries where then other groups who are pushing for progressive change come and counter protest that counter protest. Sure. So then you get all the different dynamics. Does yeah. the research indicate, again, is that where the peaceful, nonviolent approach, even in the face of something that may be provocative, designed to be provocative, designed to maybe even be, um, you know, to push the buttons directly? of people or even violent to still remain nonviolent in that space. And there was a yeah. lot of discussion around that exact dimension when, um, you know, in the US and other countries. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, those counter movements tend to use violence and their goal is really to disrupt the original protest that's out there. And yeah, I conceptualize the counter protest or the counter movement as the movement that's pushing to uphold the status quo, but you're absolutely right. In response to their mobilization, there might be other more progressive movements like the anti-racists that come up when the alt-right was protesting, for example. Um, but I think it's important then to conceptualize those reactionary counter movements as being against uh, social change. And so by definition, they are 
emergence is really tied to that movement for social change. They wouldn't exist if there was no progressive activists pushing for change in the first place. And so that's one way to think about the rise and fall of those groups. And it is often the case that when there are when there's momentum and that when there is a greater push for social change, that these movements that are counter to that tend to arise. And this dynamic is very common in the social movement world. I think the danger of those counter movements though, although they are small in numbers and they are maybe relatively weak, they can have sort of an insidious effect. So in one of my studies, we looked at the role of the alt-right. And so the alt-right has been mobilizing for a few years. And so we looked at people's perceptions of norms around the alt-right. To what extent do they think other Americans accept this movement happening um, and think that it's you know, common in American society to have these type of movements? To the extent that they think that, they actually ha have less concern than for minority rights. They think that white people are you know, becoming more and more discriminated against over time and so on. And they also believe that um, groups like the alt-right or groups that use hate speech deserve protection of free speech. And so it's not directly having a, an effect in terms of making people go out and join far-right movements, but it's more insidious in that they feel that it's okay to, for them to be a part of the society. And so we call this kind of a normali normalizing effect or a process of normalization where having um, as we hear more and more far-right groups mobilizing and we hear them in the media, it can have this chilling effect where you think like, oh, this is normal, right, to have this group. And so your, your barometer kind of shifts a little about what is normal and what is acceptable in society. Yeah, and you talked earlier in our conversation about the in-group and out-group and how over time, of course, there's a continuum, mm. but day-to-day um, -day discrimination and action is one level, but over time an in-group, out-group and dehumanization and discrimination could lead, as you mentioned, to genocide and other more um, extreme mm. behaviors. Mm. So I'm curious about the normalization mm. aspect as something um, that mm -hmm. can, can contribute over time to this yeah. kind of increase of acceptance in some way or normalization, as you said, of certain racism yeah. or, you know, us versus them or a hierarchy of who's, who's value and who's not, and then yeah. how that could potentially turn into violence. Yeah, I think here the leadership within a country is really important. So we know that, for example, after Trump was elected, hate crimes went up against minorities and particularly against Muslims, for example. And it's clear because he kind of legitimize it in some way. Um, it's not that he asked people to go out and do it, but his followers really saw him as like someone who made it okay to create this kind of social environment and a normative climate of acceptance for this type of violence. And so we can, can see this uptick. And after um, COVID-19 became a pandemic, we also saw an uptick in violence against uh, Asian people living in Western society, and it continues till now. So I think what becomes normal in the particular society depends really on what the leaders are uh, arguing and the rhetoric of the leaders. And it's not, it doesn't happen overnight, right? It's really, you demonize this particular group, you dehumanize them, you argue that they are not part of your cohesive um, in-group, they're not really a part of your country. And so you don't see them as valid members <laughs> of your society. And so 
uh, that's how you kind of leave them out of it, of your moral community. And there's also very um, interesting work on how the language that people use around that, where you you don't necessarily see that violence against them is amoral, but rather you see it as moral and as needed in order to maintain, you know, the purity of your culture or whatever it is. So people really justify it morally because we want to be seen and thought of as moral. And so even when people commit egregious acts uh, against another group, whether it's suicide bombing or whether it's forms of hate crimes, often these people will say that it is moral and it is justified. Um, so that's the kind of thinking I think that's really uh, a step-by-step -step process that aims to, you know, eventually then create these forms of violence against uh, minority groups. And are there benefits to joining a collective, um, to expanding the aspect of a social movement that can help head off some mm. of these steps as we might See, and we've seen them historically. We've seen mm -hmm. them in different countries around the world. We see that kind of um, language and, and steps mm -hmm. taken in the US. Mm -hmm. What are some of the counter forces against yeah. it? Or, or I almost don't want to use counterforce because that's almost a force, counterforce, but more mm -hmm. of a enabling, um, enabling of equity, enabling of justice, you know enabling things to, to create more space for that to grow rather than this slow drumbeat towards normalizing um, yeah. us versus them. Absolutely. Yeah, we've seen, you know, lots of people mobilize against Trump when he was elected and, you know, lots of movements take off when there are cases of violent repression in particular countries, like when there's a coup or when there's extreme government repression, there's still protesters mm -hmm. for mobilizing, uh, for example, in Myanmar, that's ongoing. So, yeah, in these situations, joining the collective is really powerful, uh, both because it also has a protective factor, but also because it can have a chance for change, right? So even if change is not if, uh, created directly, those political aims are not achieved yet. Just having that collective itself can be an achievement because then people feel a sense of togetherness. They feel empowered being among other people who share that same goal and um, ideal for their community. And so the research shows that that is kind of, there's a well-being outcome there of being part of an activist group or just an NGO or a group that's fighting for justice that you believe in. And in terms of the efficacy, I just want to revisit that because there are different ways to think about whether a group is successful or not. So maybe mm -hmm. they haven't achieved the political aims that they set out to achieve, but there are other forms of uh, successes that they um, can think about, like whether it's creating awareness, whether it's just having a presence in the media and being reported on, um, creating kind of this lobbying factor so that the government can uh, give in to certain demands, maybe not all the way, but some of the way. And so uh, the research shows that even if um, activists face uh, failures. And there are a lot of failures that can then lead to burnout, right? Activist burnout. Mm -hmm. But to the extent that they reframe those failures into successes and think that, oh, no, we were still empowered. We still, you know, have this sense of solidarity. I felt great meeting you and feeling part of this collective. That's really powerful to sustain activism. And it's, at the end of the day, it's sustained activism and movements that can really push for social change and in particular counteract the effects that you talked about. 
Yeah, and it's very interesting because in the peace building world, mm. um, you'll have individuals who will look at, well, peace hasn't broken out or yeah. violence is still going, oh, we failed. And that's really a, a feature of um, how we define successor steps. I love steps. I love the way you talked about redefining success. Mm. And, and I've, you know, also when you were talking, I was thinking about um, experiences when I had worked in countries like Nepal, mm. where when I began working with them, there was a large movement, their people's movement, because of, at the time, the um, civil liberties had been taken by the king. Mm. And it was the first time because of those actions and other things that happened, it was the first time that political parties, groups actually came together and mobilized mm. instead of splintered and yes. were protesting in the streets. And what was also interesting at the time is there were police and others who had tried to engage with the protesters. So there was a lot of, you know, to try to keep the violence down at a certain level. And I remember at the time being there right before the king had stepped down in Nepal and they were, all the protesters were at the gates of parliament saying, we're watching, we're watching. Over time, as you know, it's difficult to sustain that. Yeah. There's, a, there's a lot of burnout. There's a lot of, you know, lots going on um, neurobiologically mm -hmm. through that process. And then when I, over, you know, 10 years and up to now, we don't know, it's been how many years, 16. I <laughs> think one, how someone looks at it, it, when you're living it day to day, it seems like nothing's changed. There's still the same problems in society. Yet when yeah. someone comes from the outside and looks, you can see how it was like taking the baton in a rally mm. step by step. And how much has been accomplished it doesn't mean that there's not a lot that needs to be done before, yeah. you know, society is more equitable, but it really is a, a way of looking at it because those who kind of looked at it as though nothing happens, it almost was like a downward spiral of no energy, no agency, and kind of giving up, yet those who could kind of titrate their their actions and get rest yeah. and kind of build on it, it was a level of agency and empowerment. It was just interesting. Yeah to watch that. And I was so impressed with just the number of individuals who just kept going mm. uh, where I think a lot of us, if it had been, you know, we were just been worn out, but they, they managed it in some way that, as you said, um, I think really made it possible what had happened in the country all because yeah. of the way they, they were navigating it. And the pendulum to its change is not always smooth, right? You might get... Yeah progress and then you get a backlash and then you make progress again and so it's really important to take a bird's eye view of the situation that yeah maybe in a couple of years it hasn't been achieved but at least that momentum that you build is not gone to waste other people the younger generation will take on yeah. that yeah. baton yeah yeah ab absolutely absolutely and I was thinking too there's a sense sometimes working with social justice activists, the feeling that they, that you can't give up, you've got to keep moving and looking at taking a step back for a moment is sometimes looked at as a failure instead of it's, it's necessary for self-preservation because sure. otherwise those in positions who don't want change, they just wait you out. And so you kind of have to, you, you have to kind of yeah. take care of and, and take time for yourself. It's like an act yeah. of resistance, I think sometimes. 
to, to absolutely yeah yeah we only see the the explicit public forms of resistance but there are also other ways you resist right through your daily life and just by yeah. being resilient and keeping yourself going yeah yeah absolutely and then when you were talking about finding a common ground mm. there were activists human rights activists in that country who when things were changing they found common ground with mm. whether it was individuals in the police or with within parties who were looking yeah. at justice and never thought they would work together because yeah. they, they yeah. were they, they were throwing stones at them in the protests and they you know there yeah. was but they found like-minded individuals who were like bridges within yeah. systems where there were systemic mm-hmm. systemic problems and systemic abuses that had occurred but there were some within that had common grounds i also think about even in these big institutions and structures that that are have challenges, they're in, they're made up of individuals, and yeah. some of those individuals can find common ground and be like a bridge in between the progressive and regressive. Mm. It doesn't always work out, but that's where you know yeah. I guess it'd be more like your allyship, mm-hmm. but it can also be within institutions. Yeah, um, yeah. And I know the, there's work um, in Turkey around the Gezi Park protests where mm-hmm. groups from all different spectrums and ideologies, you know, feminists, but also like more conservative Muslim groups, like they were all, they all came together because they were against, you know, um, changing this public park uh, where they were going to do some renovation there, but they all did sit-ins there. And so that was really powerful where it's almost a case of strange bedfellows, you know, coming together. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that was only possible around this common, you know, uh, common enemy is really powerful for solidarity. Yeah, and something like a park that, you know, it's almost, it gets you off the train tracks of all the contentious Mm -hmm. and a way of commonality and connection to build empathy and and broaden as I, you know, that aperture, your lines. Yeah, so it's it's really interesting. Yeah, for sure, and powerful. So is there anything else that you would like to share related to your um, work? Um. <laughs> anything, anything I have not answer, asked <laughs> and you want to answer? <laughs> well, I guess one quick thing to add is also some of the minority groups that I've talked about, well, we can often see them as having a history of victimization and that they are discriminated against, but it's also important to recognize them as groups that have lots of agency and that have led these movements to push for change. And so in a project that I have ongoing at the moment, we are looking at the how Black people perceive their own history, so Black history. So it's not just in terms of having collective victimization um, throughout the course of history, but they also view their history through a very resilient lens. And so this is a concept of collective historical resilience that continues to provide strength and support for them to mobilize to this day. And so that's, I think, very powerful to take a historical angle, going back to what we were talking about, having ancestors that have advocated and fought for your rights can be very powerful yeah. when you remember that, you know, today that you're not alone on the streets, yeah. you're part of this big movement that has a big, rich history. Yeah, that's, be- that's beautiful. And it is very powerful because it goes to where you were saying, we want to be part of something, we want to have mm-hmm. um, meaning and connection. Yeah. And that we can go back all the way through to our ancestors and see we're part of this long 
history. That's really beautiful. Thank you for yeah. sharing that. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you for, for joining us. Yeah. Thank you, Colette, for organizing and for inviting me to share my thoughts. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week for the Think Peace podcast, where peace crosses the mind. And thank you to those who make this podcast possible, the Mary Hope Foundation and our amazing senior producer, Cam Kasser. Please visit our website, www.thinkpeacepodcast.com, where you can subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes and news. And remember to think peace.